thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientist, the show where we bring you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. I'm Julia Ravey and in this week's programme, we look at the scientific highlights from the last 70 years of the Queen's reign, the baby names which experience a boom and bust with their popularity and what does it take for a 20 metre long top predator to go extinct. And after that, we continue our alternative energy month as the cost of energy continues to rise. And this week, we are all a flurry about wind power. We'll be getting up close with a traditional windmill, learn about the turbines which you can partially own, and hear of a homemade device which can capture the wind and turn it into electricity. The Naked Scientist podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. It's the Queen's Platinum Jubilee and across the country and the world, celebrations are going on to mark an event none of us will ever see in our lifetimes again. A British monarch reigning for 70 years. We're doing our bit here on the programme to mark the occasion by selecting some of the standout scientific highlights that have happened during the last seven decades. To kick us off... All of us are the products of the genes we inherited from our parents. They are written into the molecules of DNA, millions of miles of it, packed inside almost all of our 37 trillion cells. And we're not unique in this regard. DNA is life's recipe book. It's what gets passed on to our children and it's what goes wrong when we get cancer and a range of other diseases. So understanding it marks one of the biggest breakthroughs in biology and is a British achievement that's changed the world and one of the first scientific highlights of the Queen's reign. Chris Smith tells the story. In 1953, not long after the Queen's coronation, two scientists walked into a bustling Cambridge pub and announced over a beer that they had discovered the secret of life. That pub, the Eagle, now has a brass plate documenting the occasion and the place where Francis Crick and James Watson made that pronouncement not long after noon, on February 28th. Although many present at the time probably dismissed it as mere braggadocio, it really was a turning point for biology. What the duo had discovered was the structure of the DNA molecule that's present in the heart or nucleus of most of the cells in most living things. Assisted by X-ray images of DNA crystals prepared by Rosalind Franklin, Watson and Crick worked out what DNA was made of and how it fitted together. It consisted of two strings of letters, one the mirror image of the other, and both twisting together into a long helix. There are four letters or bases in the DNA alphabet, dubbed A, C, T and G, and the order of those letters spells out words that we call genes. 
These are the master recipes of all of the chemicals, molecules and structures that an organism uses to operate. And incredibly, the same code works in all living things, whether it's a bacterium, a banana or a person. So a gene from a jellyfish can be added to a human cell and it will make it glow green, just like it did in its original owner. And that is why Watson and Crick claimed, quite rightly, to have found the secret of life over their lunchtime pint back in 1953. Since then, the world of molecular biology has exploded. Just in time for Her Majesty's Golden Jubilee back in 2002, a team at the UK's Sanger Centre, together with US researchers, announced they'd decoded the three billion genetic letters in the human genome. Since then, techniques have become even more powerful. Millions of COVID tests being done every day during the pandemic use the PCR technique to look for genetic signatures of the coronavirus to make those diagnoses. The process of DNA fingerprinting means we can reunite long-lost relatives, absolve people of crimes they didn't commit and catch the criminals who did do it. Now, 70 years since Watson and Crick made their announcement, we're using that same science they unlocked to edit DNA, cure diseases and even make tomatoes containing extra vitamin D, as we heard last week. I wonder if they saw that coming all those decades ago. The 1953 discovery of the structure and role of DNA. What a legacy that's created. Now, talking of legacies and inheritance, one of the things your parents usually give you after they've handed on their genes is a name. And perhaps there's been a recent birth in your family. If so, are the new parents settling on a good name? Or are they being swayed by popularity trends that you didn't even realise were there? Mitchell Newbury is an evolutionary biologist at the University of Michigan. And as he explained to me, he's been looking at what drives the popularity of baby names. As soon as a name gets about one in 500 or 100 babies, people really don't want to use it anymore. And if you look at the most popular names at any given point in time, they're probably part of these boom-bust trends. And so those names get more popular than any other names really do. So you mentioned there there are these boom-bust cycles with names. What exactly are those? Some names, uh, like for example, a classic example of this is Britney. Britney just didn't even exist before about the 1950s in the U.S. And then by 1990, it was the most popular name. And about 75% of people that were named Britney were born between 1985 and 1995. So this name went from something that really nobody had ever heard of to being the most popular name. And then the trend went out as quickly as it had come in. And why do you think we steer away from names once they reach a certain frequency in the population? Well, it's probably just what it is to be a name. We want to be able to identify ourselves. And so being unique is part of what a name is. And I don't know about you, but my elementary school classes had two or three Jessicas per classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, So maybe that's annoying. Are there names that retain a certain frequency in the population? Yeah, so not all names are boom busty. There's plenty that are perennially popular, maybe because they're just in this cultural repertoire. So we've noticed, for example, names that are in the Bible tend to be given a little more often than other names. Does it also coincide with instances in popular culture? So if a film comes out... Yeah, so names do respond to popular culture. And one of my favorite examples of this is Maverick, which didn't used to even be a name. It was a last name. 
but there was a, a cattle rancher in Texas who refused to brand his cows. And the cows that didn't have a brand became Mavericks because they were renegades or you know, this Maverick character. He wasn't, he wasn't mainstream. So it started to refer to a personality type. And then Tom Cruise in Top Gun got Maverick as a nickname. And then gradually over the last, what, 30 years or so, Maverick gradually became a name that people would actually name their babies. And today it's uh, the 50th most popular name in the U.S. Oh my goodness. Are we seeing as we become more individualistic as a, as a society with, you know, the rise of social media, all of us are being sort of driven to be these individualized selves. Have we seen changes in the frequency or uniqueness of names like this Maverick example, a name just sort of coming out of nowhere? Yeah, well, we're able to kind of measure at what frequency in the population a name really starts to be rejected because it's too common. And that frequency has somewhat declined over the last hundred years in the United States. But we've actually also been able to show that people's sensitivity to how common a name can be before they start to reject it has also changed. So people are more sensitive to how common a name is than they were in the past. <laughs> I like right now in the UK, the most popular girl's name is Olivia and the most popular boy's name is Oliver. So how long do you think they'll they'll sit on the top spot? <laughs> you know, that's so interesting because a friend of mine asked me to consult with them about naming her baby. And uh, she gave me a candidate list of names and they actually included Olivia. And I looked up the whole list of names in the database and found that my friend is actually quite on trend. All of the names that she gave me are trending upwards right now in popularity. But they all had a curious similarity that they had also had big trends about 100 to 120 years ago. And so some of these trends that are currently happening, like I said, if any name that's the top name at any given time is likely to be a trend. And so it's likely to fall out of fashion roughly the same way that it fell in. But these names that are popular now, and Hazel and Emma are some other examples, were also popular 100 years ago. And so these trends kind of cycle on these long intergenerational timescales. Mitchell Newbury's work was published in Nature Human Behaviour. In recent years, we've all become much more aware of the delicate balance of nature and the impacts that our lives and needs have on the planet. But before the 1980s, we sprayed our CFC-laden aerosols and recharged our fridges with chlorofluorocarbons with abandon. Then, halfway through Queen Elizabeth's fourth decade on the throne, scientists made a dramatic discovery that led to, arguably, one of the most effective environmental policy changes of all time. Harry Lewis. It's 1985. Ireland will win the Five Nations like a virgin will soar to the top of the charts and Super Mario Bros will hit household screens. It's also the year that an unexpected discovery will be made. It will revolutionise science, establishing one of the most successful global environmental policies of the 20th century. Joe Farman, Brian Gardner and Jonathan Shanklin, three researchers from the British Antarctic Survey, stared down at over 20 years' worth of data sprawled in front of them. If their recordings are correct, stratospheric ozone levels have been on the decline since the 1970s. Farman suggests a set of man-made compounds called chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, often found in aerosols and cooling devices like fridges, 
could be responsible. CFCs contain fluorine, carbon and chlorine. They were thought to be a wondrous discovery, insoluble in water, non-carcinogenic, non-toxic and even non-flammable. However, upon reaching the upper atmosphere, the stratosphere, and in the presence of UV light, chlorine atoms break away, which react with the ozone molecules, O3, stealing an oxygen atom to form chlorine monoxide. Further reactions with loose oxygen molecules present in the atmosphere effectively make this process never-ending. But it's a quick call to arms. By the end of 1987, the Montreal Protocol is in place. It's a declaration to phase out ozone-depleting substances. To date, 197 countries have signed the agreement. Ozone levels are back on the rise and the whole is slowly healing. But we won't see the full effects of that ban until 2050. See, CFCs take 50 years to break down. And that hole was truly massive. At its biggest, it encompassed the entirety of Antarctica. Harry Lewis there. From baffling British weather... Sideways spines of the vertebrae coming off here. ...to looking at a cheetah from the inside out. Games making their way to the clinic and what to eat in your garden. Mm. The Naked Scientists In Short podcasts bring you a top-up of short, compelling science stories. Listen and download for free at nakedscientist.com slash short or subscribe to Naked Specials wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, what a predator's tooth can tell us about its extinction and wind energy. We may be getting all swept up with the excitement, but for birds and crustaceans, is it a different story? Hailed as one of the solutions to the current energy crisis, small modular reactors, or SMRs, are intended to fill the renewables gap when supplies from alternative sources cannot be relied upon, like the loss of solar power at night, for example. The intention is they should step into the breach to replace the UK's ageing and retiring nuclear fleet as the last few existing nuclear stations go offline. So has new research suggesting that SMRs will produce 30 times more nuclear waste than existing larger station designs effectively put the concept on hold. Chris Smith spoke with Sheffield University's Claire Corkill, who works on how we handle nuclear waste, to hear her take on the matter. The paper that was published this week by Lindsay Crawl and her colleagues at Stanford took a look at how much radioactive waste is going to be generated from small modular reactors compared with the larger types of pressurised water reactor that are being built around the world, including in the UK at Hinkley Point C. And what they did was an assessment of exactly um, what kinds of wastes are going to be generated in terms of the nuclear fuel, but also reactor components. And what they found was that a small modular reactor will generate about 30 times more radioactive waste than a pressurised water reactor, depending on the reactor design. And when you say a pressurised water reactor, we're talking about the sorts of things we're currently deploying more mainstream, large nuclear reactor that we currently use to generate electricity. Yeah, that's right. So we currently have one of these at at Sizewell B and we're building another at Hinkley Point C. They generate about three gigawatts of electricity. So that's like boiling 100,000 kettles all at once. Whereas the small modular reactors, which are really relatively new on the scene, these are much, much smaller and they're 100 megawatts of electricity. So that's more like boiling 300 kettles at once. But the government have very much 
got behind this concept, haven't they? The, the regulator received an approach from Rolls-Royce to table some ideas or some plans for how to do this. A number of other companies have now entered the market with designs to do this. People think that they're an excellent idea. Why is there this disparity? Well, one of the major reasons um, for the popularity of SMRs is really their size. They're much smaller than these very large PWR reactors, which are extremely expensive to build. We've seen the cost of that Hinkley Point C reactor just increase and increase by, by millions and tens of millions of pounds year on year throughout the construction process. So by building smaller reactors, the advantage is that we can um, manufacture all of the components within the UK. We can use the supply chain that's already established here and um, to build more economic uh, reactors. Well if there are economies of scale that you can get with the SMRs why does that not also transfer to the waste then? That's a really interesting question that's precisely what Lindsay Kroll and her co-authors have discovered in, in this paper. Um, one of the major issues is actually to do with the size so if we think about how a, a, a nuclear reactor works we have uh, uranium atoms that are splitting and they create neutrons, um, subatomic particles. And these neutrons, we use them to power the chain reaction. They go on to split more atoms of uranium. Now, to make that as efficient as possible, we need to keep the neutrons inside the reactor. But the problem with small modular reactors is it's difficult to do. And what we get is something called neutron leakage. What that means is that these neutrons then start to interact with the structural components inside the nuclear reactor, and it turns them radioactive. So the stainless steel, for example, that, that the reactor is built out of, then becomes radioactive. And that is then when it comes to decommissioning those reactors, intermediate level waste that we have to manage and dispose of. Where does the difference between relative and absolute come into this? Because relatively, yes, it's producing about 30 times more waste than a massive great power station. But given that these are much smaller, does it still not translate into a very small amount of waste? And given the other benefits that would come with embracing this technology, it still adds up to a good thing? Or is the case overnight becoming a lot less compelling thanks to this research? We really do need a short-term fix to the energy crisis. And there's good potential for small modular reactors um, to, to come to the rescue here. That being said, you know, in comparison to other technologies like wind and solar and so on, you know, they don't create the same kinds of wastes as we've been discussing here. So I, I think it's a balance. We need to think about what we need in terms of generating our electricity now um, and what we're happy with being the consequences moving forward in the future. The devil's always in the detail. Claire Corkill commenting on the paper published this week, suggesting that small modular nuclear reactors might have a much bigger waste footprint than previously anticipated. Now, around the world, we think there are at least 50 million couples unable to have children naturally. But for many of them, another British breakthrough pioneered in the 1970s and coming to fruition actually around the time of Her Majesty's Silver Jubilee gave them the hope that they might become parents after all. Another biological miracle during Her Majesty's reign arrived on the 25th of July, 1978, in the form of Louise Brown, the world's first test tube baby. The pioneering science that made it all possible was born out of a partnership hatched 10 years earlier between Cambridge University scientist Bob Edwards and Oldham-based obstetrician Patrick Steptoe. 
Patients undergoing fertility investigations in Patrick's clinic allow the duo to collect eggs that were mixed with sperm in the dish to see if they would fertilise. It took more than a decade for the pair, who also recruited research nurse Jean Perdy to join the effort to work out the right hormone levels for retrieving the eggs, how to handle the extracted eggs so they remained alive and healthy outside the body, how to fertilise the eggs successfully, how to allow the resulting embryos to develop so they were robust enough to return to the womb, and critically, they had to discover when to put them back into the woman so they could implant. The technology finally triumphed in 1978 when Louise was born by caesarean section, an occasion so overwhelming that her dad immediately handed her back to the medical staff because he was shaking so violently and was terrified he might drop this amazing biological breakthrough. Louise only realised her special status a bit later on, as she told us when she joined us on the programme to celebrate her 40th birthday in 2018. When I was in senior school, I went into the science lab and um, opened the science book and there was a big picture of me in there. And the teacher said, yes, Louise, you're in this book. And I was all embarrassed. But at the time of her birth, not everyone celebrated. Even the acclaimed DNA scientist James Watson rounded on Bob Edwards and Patrick Steptoe and the Daily Mail ran a story titled Amid the rejoicing, there are those who shiver involuntarily. Where, they ask, is it all going to end? Well, it's actually ended so far with the birth of more than 8 million healthy IVF children around the world. Patrick Steptoe and Jean Perdy are sadly no longer with us, but Bob Edwards won the 2010 Nobel Prize in Medicine for a scientific leap forward that has quite literally changed lives. And contrary to the negative sentiment and sombre predictions of some prominent scientists in the 70s, many of those born by IVF, including Louise Brown herself, have since gone on to have their own healthy children that have been conceived naturally. What an amazing British breakthrough to have seen during our lifetimes and Queen Elizabeth's time on the throne. The story of the incredible life-changing technique that is IVF. In an era of new prehistoric knowledge, scientists now believe that they can ascertain where long extinct species sat in the food chain by looking more closely at the chemical composition of their teeth. Jeremy McCormack from the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology believes his recent study of the giant megalodon's giant gnashes could lead us to the cause of its demise. So a megalodon is a giant predatory shark. They went extinct around 3.6 million years ago and they had a worldwide distribution. It is the last member of the so-called megatooth lineage and um, the megalodon itself could have potentially reached sizes of up to 20 metres in total length. And you were able to compare the diets of different shark species, including that of the great white shark and the megalodon, because they were, at one point in time, both swimming around together. You've used zinc isotopes to do that. How can those isotopes help? An isotope forces the same element but uh, with a different mass. So we look at the ratio of the heavier zinc to the lighter zinc in the mineral of these teeth. And this ratio, it tells us how far up a food chain uh, an animal was feeding. The, the way this works is that the 
zinc isotope ratio changes as we move along the food chain within the vertebrate remains of uh, different animals. Right, and why is it that teeth make for such good samples? So we look at teeth because teeth are very well preserved as fossils over millions of years. And because zinc is incorporated into this mineral phase of teeth, we basically can look back millions of years, study the diet of long extinct animals. Were there any similarities then between the diets of great whites and megalodons? There is this hypothesis that the emergence of the great white shark during the early Pliocene led to competition for dietary resources between megalodon and great white sharks. And our zinc isotope results show that both species fed on a similar trophic level. And now this does not necessarily imply competition, but it really doesn't reject the hypothesis of competition between both species. I've got you. So they could have been eating pretty similar prey. Can we guess at where the diets of these two sharks may have crossed over? So from fossil evidence, we know that both species, at least occasionally, fed on marine mammals. So these included both toothed and baleen whales, although the baleen whales back then were much smaller than they are today. Um, But such kind of fossil evidence is rare, and it only gives us a snapshot of predator-prey interaction and does not give us the information about the regular diet of these species. And of course, what makes this so fascinating is it's the first time that this method, using zinc isotopes to infer one's position in the food chain, has been used on such old samples. So there must be quite a lot more to come. This is an exciting time. Yeah, that is ultimately the goal, to to use this new method to investigate the diet, ecology of long-extinct animals, which obviously has important implications for their evolution, but in some cases also their extinction. Jeremy McCormack and his investigation was published in Nature Communications. Many say the world has effectively shrunk in the modern era. With a few key presses, we can be conversing with someone thousands of miles away. The Queen now routinely takes part in Zoom calls. What makes this all possible is arguably one of the most important technological steps forward of the 20th century. The birth of the World Wide Web. James Titko. Over the course of Queen Elizabeth II's reign, undoubtedly one of the biggest ways in which our day-to-day lives have changed has been the way we interact with each other. Calls, messaging, the sharing of information, graphics, videos, all things we do on a daily basis over the World Wide Web. In 1989, British computer scientist Tim Berners-Lee built on work computer scientists in the United States had been doing on the internet to turn it from a method for sharing information between scientists in private institutions to the public open standard that it is today. To clarify, his innovation was to create the World Wide Web, which is not the same thing as the internet. The internet is the way computers connect to each other to share information, using a global system of networks that use the Internet Protocol Suite, a kind of network of networks. Tim Berners-Lee saw the opportunity to combine this incredible innovation of sharing information between computers with another nifty technique of his era, hypertext. Hypertext is a piece of text which contains a link to another piece of text or code, which a web browser can then translate into the graphics and word for the user to view the new page or site on their interface. Berners-Lee's intuition was that it would be better if we could browse the web in a similar fashion to the way our brains actually work in real life, not always in linear thought progression, but with links between ideas in multiple directions that then link to other things, perhaps far from the original thought, like a web. 
by linking pages within a website or by taking you to other websites as you encounter new ideas. Hyperlinks allow the web to imitate the way the brain works and builds connections. He knew the power of his invention, for the incredible opportunities it provides to people across the world to share ideas, but also the danger it might pose to the way our democracies function, and has been campaigning to see his creation used for good to this day. His warnings to remain vigilant in the use of this incredible tool is as relevant as it ever was. And I'll finish with this final thought from the man himself. While the problems facing the web are complex and large, I think we should see them as bugs, problems with existing code and software systems that have been created by people and can be fixed by people. James Tetco reporting on the wonders of the World Wide Web. Much has changed for business owners, managers and staff recently. But with over 30 years' experience in telecommunications, award-winning independent company Spitfire have the expertise to make sure you stay ahead and can keep on innovating. Whether it's connectivity, MPLS networks, firewalls, or phone systems, Spitfire can help. To find out more, go to spitfire.co.uk. That's spitfire.co.uk. Spitfire, telecoms and IP engineering solutions for business since 1988. Music in the program is sponsored by Epidemic Sound, perfect music for audio and video productions. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with me, Julia Ravy, and Chris Smith. And this week, we're shooting the breeze about wind energy and the role it might play in our pursuit of net zero as the costs of energy continue to soar. In previous programmes, we've considered the roles of solar and tidal power. And this time, it is the turn of the wind turbine. We learn about how these technologies work, how you can own part of a wind turbine yourself, and a new way of capturing wind energy with a kite. So will we be blown away? Or is it all hype and hot air? We've been using wind to generate electricity for over a century, but for thousands of years, and of course long before electricity became our energy currency, wind power was still a staple. Only then, our forebears used it to move water and to grind grain. And Julia took a trip to Burwell Museum and Windmill in Cambridgeshire to hear how. Welcome, my name is Andrew. I am the head of the mill team at Burwell Museum and we are in charge of maintaining, preserving and operating Stephen's Windmill Burwell, which is the last working corn mill in the village. She is 200 years old and I have been working with her for the last eight years. Wow, well she looks good for 200 years old. How high is the windmill? The main tower is approximately 50 feet and each sail is about 35 feet long. So we get nearly 100 feet by the time you get to the tip of the topmost sail. Oh, wow. It's big. Yes. This land has been called Mill Field since the 1200s, and we have found evidence of windmills dating back to the 1300s. So we've been using wind power all that time? Yes. There has been wind power used in this village for at least 700 years. Let's go inside. I'd love to see how that mechanism works. We call this the Great Spur Wheel. It's the largest diameter wheel in the whole building and it is the penultimate gear before the stones. It turns three stone nuts which then turn the three pairs of stones above. So this mill, when it was built, was capable of grinding three different meal, flour, rye, barley and also had a grain cleaner 
and a sieving machine to produce white flour. All of those different contraptions, are they powered by the wind? All can be powered by the wind, yes. All powered by gears coming down from different gearing and different takeoff drives. Am I allowed up here? Yes, please. Oh my goodness. This is a steep staircase. So this is the most important floor in the mill. This is what we call the stone floor. It is also here that you can see our principal secondary drive, what we call the crown wheel, which was the wind-powered drive that drives the auxiliary machinery, including the grain cleaners and the white flour machine, which we call the dresser. So you can hear that noise. That's the shoe which is rattled by a large lump of metal projecting out of the stone called a mace. And that rattling gently feeds grain into the eye of the stone and is then drawn through by the motion of the stones, which in a scissoring action cuts the grain open and releases the flower. And then it comes through to the chute, which takes it down to the ground floor. And if you look behind you, these are... So in the Victorian period, we had four corn mills in the village alongside countless small drainage mills which assisted in draining the fens. So there were many examples of wind power being used for different purposes. We were a corn grinding mill, they also had pumping mills and they also had mills that ground fertiliser for the local farms. Wow yeah we really make it the use of the windy area that we live in. Almost certainly. We, we still use wind power to operate and we're very pleased that we can do that. You can feel the wind absolutely whipping on the northwest coast of England today. I'm currently hiking up. I think it's a sand dune. There's grass all over it, but I'm hiking up a sand dune because when I get to the top of this, I should be able to see some turbines. Let's have a look. Oh my goodness, this is really steep. Aha! There they are. And it is extremely windy. But what I can see off in the distance, it's pretty misty. The Burbo Banks Flats Wind Turbine Offshore Farm. From here, I can count one, two, three, four, five. Oh, they just keep going. I think let's get down off this windy hill, shall we? A little bit less windy down here, maybe. So we've moved on from wind being used to produce food produce like flour and also draining water systems to now powering our country and big offshore wind farms like this one here in Crosby are doing just that but just how much energy does a farm like this produce well I think I should get off this windy beach and go into town to find out I've come to the University of Liverpool to meet with Carl Whittle who is an engineer he's going to tell me how they work the easiest way to think of it is like a dynamo on a bike, and I'm probably showing my age here, that you put a dynamo on the bike wheel and as you turn in the wheel, it turns a generator. So the way the generator works is exactly the same as a steam turbine. So you have a magnetic coil and you mm. have a magnet rotating around and as it rotates around, it will generate AC current. A wind turbine then converts that to the usable energy that you want, whether it's AC or DC. And then that gets transmitted to the grid or to wherever it is being used. Yeah, and you've just got a diagram up here of, is this the evolution of the wind turbine? To me, it looks like it starts, it's like a Mercedes sign, a small one, all the way up to a, a big, massive one. Yeah, pretty much that's what it is. It starts <laughs> off with a three, like the Mercedes Benz sign. They're just getting bigger. 
But they're generating now. I think that the, the ones I can see at the moment, or ones we can see at the moment, are generating in the megawatt range wow. of energy. So if you have a wind farm of a couple of hundred or a couple of thousand of them in some of the big super ones, you're generating hundreds of megawatts up to gigawatts of electricity, which is an equivalent to a nuclear reactor. So how many homes would that power? One gigawatt will probably maybe really does depend on the usage of the home, but it would definitely cover Liverpool. And the newer ones will go even further coming inland in terms of how much electricity they can provide. And what are these turbines currently made out of? A range of materials are being made from aluminium, steels for the stand and for the blades are being made from composites now. Because we need to get the weight down because the heavier the turbine blades, the more energy it takes to turn them. It's an efficiency gain. We're just trying to get every little bit of efficiency, you know, 10% here, 2% there begins to mount up over time. And in some of the early designs, we couldn't really recycle everything. Now we can recycle most things that comes off. So we are able to reuse the metals. We're able to reuse the composites if we wanted to. The carbon usage for wind is now to the point after a number of years, maybe five to 10 years, depends on the wind turbine design. You are now what would be defined as net negative carbon Mm -hmm. in that you are generating electricity compared to gas that is no longer generating carbon. Is there ever going to come a point where nearly all our energy in the UK can come from these structures? It is conceivable, based on current usage of electricity, to have days whereby we've got more wind and solar than we have gas. The problem we have with wind is it's its intermittency. We're lucky where we are geographically, and there's always wind. There's always wind somewhere. The problem is some days the wind doesn't blow. So if you were to look on bright sunny days, a couple of weeks ago around here, we did have a bright sunny day with blue skies. (laughs) Surprisingly. Surprisingly. But the wind was not strong that day. So we relied more on solar than we relied on wind. So what we need to have is we either need to increase our wind capacity. The other way is to have increased energy storage, such as batteries or the use of hydrogen. Because one of the things that you, you sometimes find is that the wind is turning, but the wind turbines are not turning because they're not needed for electricity provision on the grid scale. Or the wind is really blowing and we have to turn the turbines off because we don't want to damage the wind turbines. So we need to have other supporting things in place, but it is conceivable for us, based on our current electrical needs, we could have days where we, in the next 10 years, where we, we don't need gas. We can run on wind and solar together. Mm. Nuclear would always be there as a baseline, say, to provide a safe supply of electricity. But there will come a point when we will not need any gas at all in the day. As we move to net zero by 2050, and there are a lot more electric vehicles on the road, we then need to increase capacity even more to cover everybody wanting to charge their cars when they go home. And that is a demand management issue. Not knowing when the wind will blow and how hard is one of the main drawbacks confronting energy companies that rely on wind power to supply their customers. So if they bank on seeing a certain level of supply, but a lull means they're short of power, they have to make up for the shortfall by buying supplies off their competitors, often at shockingly high prices, undermining the viability of their business. But if we improve our short-term weather forecasting for turbines so predictions about wind speeds and therefore outputs can be improved, the situation is much less risky for the operators who are more likely to invest. That is what Martin Shields from Colorado State University is trying to do, as he explained to Chris. 
So our problem is how do we provide better wind forecasts to utilities so they can better plan for producing tomorrow's electricity demand? That sounds like a bit of a trivial problem, though. It might not be windy tomorrow. We'll just get the electricity from somewhere else. I mean, is that not how it works? Well, you sure you can go out on the market and buy it from someone else, but it's a lot more expensive when you expected the wind to blow and it didn't. You have to go out and pay a lot of money for electricity on what's called the spot market. So how are you going to solve that for them? We work with scientists at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, part of the U.S. government. And every day they're hard at work fine-tuning their models. So what we do in our project is look at how the old model that's currently running does in predicting wind 12 hours ahead versus the developmental model, which is behind the curtains. 12 hours later, we see how good those predictions are. And we look at what the cost of a mistake is under each of those regimes. And what we found is that as the model is improved by the scientists, there's substantial savings, and and that can subsequently be passed on to consumers through lower electricity rates. Does this give generators more confidence, essentially, to, to invest in this and go down this path? Exactly. The uncertainty of wind is an impediment to its adoption. Sometimes it blows and sometimes it doesn't. But also the uncertainty about the uncertainty is an impediment. And what we're trying to do is remove the uncertainty about the uncertainty. And that provides value to the utility and helps increase the likelihood that they'll use more of it. Are utility companies receptive to this kind of thing? Can you see them actually having trust and confidence in the sorts of numbers that you're beginning to generate? Yeah, we've talked to a few utilities who are clamoring for this information. It really is an expensive problem when there's a mistake made and anything they can do to keep rates down to consumers, they're excited about. And we're just kind of hoping that we can help in that effort. It it might be a few dollars per year or a few pounds per year for the average customer. But when you add that up across the economy, it can run into the hundreds of millions of dollars in annual savings. And that's money that can be spent on other things and have something a little bit more exciting in their lives than electricity. You're listening to The Naked Scientist and we're getting right back into our Alternative Energy Month with a focus on wind energy. As the old saying goes, an Englishman's home is his castle. But what about if you wanted to own a wind turbine and use that to power your metaphorical castle. Well, prompted by the idea that a whole turbine might be a bit big for the average home, a few years ago, a -a first-of-a-kind initiative was born that meant you could own part of a wind turbine and use the proportion of it that you do own to cut the cost of your electricity bill by consuming your own green electricity. The idea was quite daring, not least because the company had to persuade people to invest in a turbine that hadn't even been bought or built yet, so they could raise the funds to construct it. The CEO of Ripple Energy, the organisation behind the idea, is Sarah Merrick. There are 907 people that have owned part of that project. We also got a grant from the Welsh Government. So that project has been built and it's up and running and people have got their first savings off their electricity bill as well. So it's just a monthly saving that gets applied depending on how windy it is. So we had a fantastic April and people 
saved on average about £24 off their electricity bill. So we've had a full cycle of launch project, fund it, build it and then get savings. And then we've also launched and funded a second much bigger project. So the first project was one turbine. The next project is Kirkhill, that's in Scotland. That's eight turbines. So that's funded. There's 5,600 people that own part of that project. And it's now going to start construction and it will be generating late next year. Can you just give us a reminder of how these schemes work? So if I wanted to get involved and get some of my energy from these wind turbines, how would I go about doing that? Go onto our website, you put in how much electricity you use. You then say, do you want all of that covered by your wind farm or half of it or 10%? Once you've decided, you then buy the shares in the wind farm and then we take care of everything else. We manage the operations, we manage the build. And then when the wind farm's operating, your electricity supplier then buys your bit of the wind farm's electricity and supplies it to your home via the grid, and then you get savings off your bill automatically. So it's really, really easy. You can sign up in a few minutes, really flexible. So it doesn't matter if you move home or if you live in a flat or if you rent, anyone can now buy a bit of a wind farm. And is that an upfront cost you pay to invest in the wind farm? You pay upfront and it's literally that money is what the wind farm gets built with. One of your projects is up in Scotland. One is down in Wales. So do you have to live in the local area to get involved? Does the wind turbine have to be within a certain radius of your home? Because we use the national grid to get the electricity around the country, it doesn't matter where you live. You can't live in Northern Ireland because there's a different grid in Northern Ireland. But yeah, you can live anywhere. You know, the whole point of Ripple is to enable everyone, no matter whether you live in like middle of the countryside or in the city centre, everyone can own their own source of clean power now. Have you got any projects coming up? We're looking at our third project at the moment. So there's a couple of different options that we're looking at. So it it might be a solar park. It might be another wind farm. But we want to launch another one, hopefully before the end of the year. Yeah, I think from my perspective, I live in a flat and it sounds like a really great way for people who don't necessarily live, you know, out in the countryside where you could put your own turbine up or have your own solar panels to get that green energy whilst also making a saving. Do you think this is the future of getting green energy to more people? Absolutely. Yeah. Part of the beauty of renewable energy is that it can be owned by thousands of people and you can't own a bit of a coal station or a gas station or a nuclear station, but you absolutely can own a little bit of a wind farm or a little bit of a solar park. And the benefit as well, you know, like we've seen at the moment, electricity prices have gone through the roof. But actually, the cost of operating the wind farm has stayed really stable. So it means the savings that you get on your bill are a lot higher when the electricity price is high. So it's a way of enabling millions of people across the country to be able to own their own source of clean power, but get the low cost and stable priced green electricity that that wind farm or solar park generates. And that can help protect them from the price spikes that we've seen at the moment. Sarah Merrick from Ripple Energy. On Crosby Beach, you can hear the birds overhead and there are many seagulls enjoying a nice float in the very breezy conditions that we've got down here today. With these wind turbines, although they are providing huge benefits in terms of us getting more clean energy into the UK and around the world, on windy days at least, it's important to recognise that these are really huge, potentially intrusive structures. These turbines jut up hundreds of feet into the air so what impact is that having on birds which normally fly through these paths and for these offshore wind farms like the one here at Crosby are they impacting life below the sea over to Chris 
There are thought to be over 8,000 onshore and 2,000 offshore turbines in the UK alone now, with numbers still rising. While the energy they generate will, over time, of course, form part of our solution to the climate change problem, their immediate impacts on proposed construction sites do, of course, have to be taken into account. So we're not only in a climate emergency, we're in a nature emergency as well. And wind turbines, wind farms, really good at generating low-carbon energy, so that's really positive. But they do present some risks to birds and their habitats. That's Aidan Smith. He's head of policy and advocacy at RSPB Scotland. This danger was highlighted in one of the first wind farms in the United States, in Altamont Pass, California. It's a really important migratory route for lots of bird species. And lots and lots of birds were tragically killed by colliding with the turbines there as they were passing through. From this tragic incident, bird behaviours and habitats are now taken into account before a turbine is erected. Working with conservationists and with government agencies to avoid the most sensitive places for the most part. So that fortunately has meant we've not had too many of those really terrible situations like they had at Ultimate Pass. Even though some may argue that more birds are killed by cars and cats in a year than turbines, particular species might be more vulnerable. There are not all that many eagles, for instance, killed by domestic cats, but actually that is a sort of species that is potentially at risk from colliding with wind turbines. Wind turbines can disrupt bird populations in three ways, with the first being... Collision, so collision with the moving turbine blades. The other thing is, though, that these structures are novel, if you like, so it's not something which wildlife has evolved to coexist with. So sometimes birds see a turbine and then go absolutely nowhere near it, which is great for avoiding colliding with this structure. But maybe if they avoid a important feeding area or nesting habitat, then that could have an impact on their ability to survive. And a third type of impact is more about a sort of barrier effect. Birds often will nest or roost in a certain location and then go off to feed somewhere else. And so they're journeying or commuting, if you like. And if a wind turbine suddenly appears on that commuting route, they may need to avoid that. And if the bird is using up every last ounce of energy just to survive and then suddenly it's got to take a longer route, it could maybe tip the balance and tip it over the edge. These factors are taken into account when citing turbines to avoid disruption to populations. And we've now got years of data to help us to ensure that the sites on land are selected successfully. But when we look offshore, we don't have a similar body of data to fall back on yet. So it's much trickier to predict what sort of impacts these turbines are going to have on that wildlife. There's currently also a conflict between generating more green energy by erecting more offshore wind turbines and trying to better understand and ultimately protect seabird populations. Fortunately, technology is helping us quite rapidly here. So things like it's possible to put tags on seabirds, and that's quite a recent development because the technology has got such that the tags have got small enough that they can fit on some of the smaller seabirds now. And that is really rapidly increasing our knowledge about where birds are going after they're leaving the nest sites on the coast and when they're going out to feed out at sea and also where they're going in the winter and things like that. But the effects of these offshore wind turbines are not confined just to the air they spin through because scientists are increasingly documenting impacts in the underwater realm too, particularly for crustaceans like crabs and lobsters. Thanks to advances in tracking technology, we can now much better understand how these animals get about. Alistair Linden is a marine biologist at Heriot Watt University, where he's been following the travails of the edible brown crab. Recent tagging work has suggested that they move over quite large distances, particularly the males. And it seems that they, generally speaking, move up the coast from the sort of southeast to the north and then from the north around the top of Scotland and down the west coast. The female crabs, although not travelling as far, still move away from the coastline in order to brood their eggs. And ensuring their numbers is vital. Crabs 
in terms of volume and value, are the second most important crustacean catch in the UK, as far as fisheries are concerned. And they're extremely important for small, rural and isolated communities. Increased numbers of offshore wind farms means inevitable changes to the surrounding marine environment, which could influence wildlife behaviour. It means that there'll be a lot more electrical cables around on the seabed compared to what there have been in the past. And the implication of that is that they generate a magnetic field around the cable, which can't be shielded. And we know that a lot of marine organisms have, or at least we suspect, have magnetic senses, probably for navigation using the Earth's magnetic field, which of course is very, very weak. So if they can detect the Earth's magnetic field, that might interfere with any movements or migrations where they might be using that magnetic field for direction finding. It is currently pretty hard to test this theory out in the water, so Alistair and his team have set up scenarios that mimic this potential electromagnetic field effect in their lab. They did it using a water-filled tank with a large coil of copper, that's called a Helmholtz coil, placed underneath it. And by putting crustaceans in the tank, Alistair and his team have made some striking observations with edible crabs, brown crabs, when we have electromagnets under their tank and we switch them on, the crabs tend to triangulate on the magnets and then sit there without moving very much. So it tends to reduce their activity levels quite substantially when the magnets are on. So it looks as though the magnetic field might actually reduce their natural movements, which might reduce their interactions with other members of the same species, so potentially mate finding, and it might also reduce their ability to forage, to feed and find food. In terms of developing offspring, the magnetic field also appears to impact another species too. We found that when female lobsters with eggs were exposed to the magnetic fields throughout the eggs developmental phase, that the larvae were almost three times as likely to be disrupted in their development in terms of physical deformation and morphological changes. And that had an impact on their ability to swim. And swimming for these larval stages once they've hatched is very important because they need to be able to swim up to the surface to obtain food. Now, it's unclear if the cables currently sitting on the seabed have these impacts on crustaceans in the wild, but burying the cables under the sand, as most companies do, might. Burying the cables would clearly be beneficial because the magnetic field around the cable drops off relatively rapidly with distance. But continuing to study these effects, both in the lab and on the shore, is important if we continue to move to more offshore wind energy in the future. It's important to know that we're not having unintended negative consequences in trying to do something good. Are the magnetic fields sufficient to disrupt the migrations of male crabs, which might have implications for the population biology of these species? How small a small effect is actually not significant as far as survival of these organisms is concerned, either as larvae or as adults? We don't really know that, and we would need to do further tagging experiments to see what sort of movements might be affected by the cables in practice. Uh, We might also need to think about the impacts of construction of these facilities, which clearly are on quite a large scale as well. The, The current practice would appear to be adequate, but we still have to continue research to make sure that there aren't any other unintended consequences.
While turbines present one solution to harness wind energy and transform it into electricity, they are not the only structures to do this. A company in Spain have created the Vortex Bladeless, a six-foot-tall tower fan-like structure which wobbles from side to side to produce power. Their lack of huge blades means these can be popped up in more locations and may prove less harmful to birds on land. There is also something else which catches the wind which could be revolutionary in this technology. Kites. Chris spoke to engineer Rod Reed from Windswept and Interesting, who's designed a kite turbine which might take wind energy to new heights. So there's a lifting kite up in the sky that normally would carry a camera. But instead of a camera, this time on the line, we've got this spinning set of kites that are flying around the line. And those lines, they're turning a generator on the ground. It's like a set of model airplane wings tied round in a circle. And they're really efficient and fast as they go around. The parachute one, it stays up on the top and sort of adds a little bit of tension into the system so that we can transmit torque down to the ground. Because we hold the tethers apart and because they're in tension and the kite blades, these rotor blades are out at a distance, we can transmit that torque to ground safely. So how much force are they generating then? How much twist is coming down the cables? So we get about a kilowatt and a half out of a small model that I'm able to launch myself. But in the next automated one that we're going to work on, there's going to be a robot doing my job in the field. And we'll be taking that one up to 10 kilowatts. But we can stack them in networks. So we're hoping to make really giant ones in the future. And how do you avoid having a hideous tangle, which seems to be the outcome whenever I try and fly my kids' kites? So if you think of putting a single fishing line out there's a hundred of you trying to fish in the same place you'll get those tangled very quickly but instead you could have a few thousand lines in a fishing net but it doesn't tangle because of the way it's tied together so we have you know very stretched out lines and is your view then that you would have instead of a field full of wind turbines we could have a field full of kites and you're basically flying just an array of kites at perhaps a range of heights as well and in that way you're just generating all the time Yeah, we already fly at a a range of heights. We stack rotors one on top of the other. So we've got multiple kites on each layer on the turbines that we have. What about the environmental impacts of this? Is this noisy? Anything moving in wind, anything going fast through wind is going to make noise. We have a fairly low tip speed ratio as compared to a normal turbine. So it's slightly less noisy. If there was a season that you wanted to be rid of these things if you had to get them down you knew there was a flock coming by or something like that they're very quick in norway there's a kite company that takes their systems down for any given event like coast guard emergencies and such so we can bring them down within minutes if needs be and what's the the ground footprint like well i've got systems that at the moment they fit in the back of my car so i've got an electric car i can take a turbine with me and recharge but In the next version, this automated one, I'm going to be putting on a backline handling system. So having a backline just gives you this safety, this extra line in case anything goes wrong. So that will want to drive at about a radius of 15 metres out from the ground station. And the P word always has to come along at some point. What's the price? Is this going to be cheap or is this going to be very expensive? You've got about a tenth of the material that a standard wind turbine has because the materials are following the forces in this. We're working in tensile systems, so it should be very capital light um, as we go forward. Cheap.
looking out at the wind farm here in Crosby, it'll be interesting to see how technology evolves over time to let us harness the power of the wind. Will there be just more and more of these huge turbine structures or will we go for alternative ways to capture the wind and put it onto the grid? It looks like the UK and places around the world will more and more readily rely on wind power in the future. And on days like today, where the wind is blowing a gale and the turbines don't stop spinning, these are the perfect conditions to power our homes. Indeed, but the real challenge ahead for wind is about consistency. What do we do on a day where the wind doesn't blow? We really need to be better at storing the energy that's generated on blowy days to keep us nourished in the energy desert of a still cloudy day and that's what we're going to look at next time better ways to store and distribute the energy we generate from alternative sources that's coming up next time the naked scientist comes to you from the university of cambridge's institute of continuing education it's supported by rolls royce i'm julia ravey thanks for listening and until next time goodbye Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.